0: Murder in jazz-age New York City that exposed a sea of crime and corruption.
1: The city government was rife with incompetence and also ripe with corruption because it was corrupt from the very top, from the the top bosses all the way down. And they would hire people under them who would help them fleece the city and, and make money wherever they could. From real estate shenanigans to building inspectors taking bribes to cops uh, shaking down gamblers and prostitutes and, and madams. One example of this that was central to the book and central to Vivian Gordon's history and life was a ring of crooked cops and defense attorneys and prosecutors and bailing bondsmen who were shaking down women for prostitution and framing women prostitution.
0: That's Michael Woolreich. We talk with him about his book, The Bishop and the Butterfly, Murder, Politics, and the End of the Jazz Age. Then, in honor of Black History Month, we re-air part of our conversation with Paul Kicks about his book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, Ten Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. Finally, we read a poem by Palestinian poet Mosab Abu Toha, who was abducted by the Israeli Defense Force and brutally beaten before a global outcry resulted in his release. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Riannon. New York City has a long history of corruption. Some are calling the current era of financial capitalism the golden age of corruption, and with New York being the preeminent global capital of financial capital, there's plenty of fraud, grift, and graft going around in the present day. But the golden age of corruption in New York was the century that Tammany Hall sat at the center of the city's governance, spreading its tentacles into every nook and cranny, from the beat cop on the street all the way up to the mayor and beyond to the New York State Legislature. And the Jazz Age of the 1920s was, if not the height of corruption, certainly one of its major peaks. In his book, The Bishop and the Butterfly, Michael Woolreich tells the riveting story of how the 1931 murder of con artist and high-class prostitute Vivian Gordon brought about the downfall of New York City Mayor Jimmy Walker and led to the end of Tammany Hall's dominance. I spoke with him last month. Let's take a listen. Michael Woolreich, welcome to Writer's Voice.
1: Uh, Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.
0: The Bishop and the Butterfly, this book, centers around the sensational murder in February 1931 of a New York City woman who called herself Vivian Gordon. It was a murder that led to a massive corruption investigation and the eventual resignation of New York Mayor Jimmy Walker. So, first, tell us about Vivian Gordon. She was no common prostitute.
1: (laughs) Uh, No, not at all. So, I mean, maybe let's start with before she became Vivian Gordon, which was actually an alias. Uh, She was, she'd been an an actor on the vaudeville circuit and uh, settled down with a husband and had an eight-year-old daughter. Her name, her married name was Benita Bischoff and her daughter was also Benita. She had in the early 1920s separated from her husband and who was in they were in philadelphia and she took her daughter to new york her daughter was a talented actor and i mean sorry a talented dancer so they were trying to make it on on broadway and at that time in 1923 she was arrested by a vice cop named andrew mclaughlin a very handsome very successful vice cop who arrested a lot of women for prostitution uh, including Vivian Gordon, or Benita Bischoff, as she was called then, and took her down to the courthouse. And on the advice of a lawyer, she pleaded guilty. Now, having pled guilty, it being her first offense, and having a, a young daughter, uh, she should have been put on probation. Instead, the judge sentenced her to a reformatory upstate. She told a her parole officer that she believed that she had been framed by her ex-husband and that vice cop, um, Andrew McLaughlin. She went to the reformatory and there, instead of being reformed, it was quite the opposite. She was now branded as a prostitute. And she, there were a number of other pardoned criminals at this reformatory and they taught her how she could make money in the roaring twenties. And so after she left, she adopted this new identity. She took the name Vivian Gordon and she embarked on this life of crime. She was at first a high-end prostitute, but then she gradually built a, somewhat of a business empire where she would, uh, first of all, she would oftentimes, she would seduce wealthy New Yorkers, uh, wealthy men, and you know get gifts from them. And then oftentimes after the affair was over, she would blackmail them. That was kind of her her core business. But she didn't do it alone. As she got older, she brought in a bunch of younger women uh, whom she called her, her young 49ers because they were gold digging. And she taught them how to take advantage of these men. Uh, she also had her fingers in other pies. She lent money to gangsters. She invested in stocks and real estate. She did some she was did some stock frauds. She financed and attempted bank robbery in Oslo, Norway, of all places. So she, you know, was was doing a lot of various criminal activities. She also had a, a call girl service that she ran uh, and made a fair amount of money. Allowed her to invest in real estate and uh live a quite comfortable life in uh Murray Hill which is a, a, an expensive neighborhood in Manhattan.
0: And she was even more than that however. She was a talented actress, she also painted, she was quite cultured, she was very witty and quite beautiful.
1: Uh yes, everyone, you know, the, would remark about how uh, how sophisticated, how intelligent, uh, how talented she was. A, a cut above the people that they were, you know, used to uh dealing with. People from her family members to her boyfriends to uh even some of the men that she that she targeted.
0: Now, after her murder, in fact on the same day, her diary was found at her apartment in Murray Hill, a luxury apartment. What did the police find in that diary?
1: So the diary, technically they were date books, but she used them as diaries. uh, And each day she wrote, or at least many days, what was happening to her. Some of it was business. Some of it was the loan she she made and the uh, repayment she was demanding. Some of it was darker. So she talked in particular about her boyfriend, uh, who was a a lawyer named John Radloff, a Brooklyn lawyer. And he, according to her diary, had made a number of threats against her. He, while on the surface, uh, completely respectable, had no criminal record, interacted with various criminal figures, uh, including a a, a thug who was sort of his henchman named Chowderhead. His name was Sam Cohen, but they called him Chowderhead. And this man, John Ratloff, threatened uh, Vivian Gordon that... that, uh, Chatterhead would take her out into a remote location somewhere and and kill her and take her valuables. So when police discovered this diary, uh, that was, you know, he was obviously one of their chief suspects. But there were other people listed in the diary too. Many of Vivian Gordon's paramours who included, you know, many uh, rich and respectable men in New York. So these diaries, as you can imagine, were, were very sensational.
0: And, and then tell us a little bit more about her lawyer. Was he the person she was involved with these stock? Because um, I, I confused there was another name that was similar to his in the book, um, but these, these uh, fraudulent stock trades.
1: So yes, there were there were actually two cousins, uh, John Radloff uh, and Joseph Radlow. Uh, was actually originally they were they were both. Uh, second generation uh, Russian Jewish immigrants and they had they, they Americanized their names different their families Americanized their names differently and she had relationships with both of them and she was involved in criminal activities with both of them uh first Joseph Radlow and she was doing some some financial crimes with her and then she got involved with his cousin uh John Radlov who was the Brooklyn lawyer uh, and he helped her up her game. He, you know, when she would blackmail somebody, he would go. He would be the one who would go to, you know, that man's office and you know deliver the deliver the blackmail threat and collect the money. He also got her involved in various other activities. He managed her real estate investments. He connected her with uh, the bank robbers in in Norway. He was also extremely manipulative, both in terms of their relationship and just financially. He, he exploited her and used her to line his own pocket.
0: She carried on these activities within a larger context, which you really paint in this book, The Bishop and the Butterfly, Michael Woolwright. You paint in vivid detail. Um, give us a sense of New York City at that time from the roaring 20s to the grim early 30s.
1: Yeah, it was such a a dramatic shift, almost unparalleled in history, at least cultural shift. So, in the 1920s, you had two things. You had, first of all, you had Prohibition, uh, which was very unpopular in New York and very unsuccessful in New York. I think the police chief complained that after Prohibition, you know, 10,000, they closed down 10,000 saloons. And then within a few months, 15,000 speakeasies popped up. So, you know, New Yorkers were. Openly defying prohibition. And once they started defying that, they were also defying other norms uh, from the Victorian era before. They they, particularly the women, started wearing uh short uh skirts and bobbing their hair and drinking, you know, late into the night uh with strangers, all things that, you know, even a few years earlier would have been uh very scandalous. But all of a sudden, everyone was doing it, and they were. There was also a lot of crossover between, you know, wealthy, respectable New Yorkers and criminal elements. A lot, the a number of these night, famous nightclubs were owned by gangsters and bootleggers who used the nightclubs to launder their money. Uh, so you had, at the same time, you had this booming stock market. You had all this money pouring into New York City. People were making a lot of money and spending it uh, very ost- ostentatiously. Uh, you know, you can think about the great Gatsby. And that that's what that world was like. And then in 1929, it all came crashing down. People's investments were wiped out. The party was over, as I think uh, Fitzgerald himself uh, described it. And a new reality set in that was much more, people had much less money and were struggling even to survive.
0: And this kind of gangland atmosphere, um, was, was established within the context of some much older and more entrenched corruption in New York City. Tell us about Tammany Hall. You do a, a wonderful kind of historical look back. So briefly, talk about Tammany Hall, this, uh, the kind of pervasive graft and grift, corrupt elections, and the roots of the Democratic Party.
1: So, so yes, Tammany Hall was uh, what, what uh, historians call a political machine. And at that time, most cities, certainly most big cities in the US had political machines. But Tammany Hall was famous or infamous for being the most powerful and, and perhaps the most corrupt. They had been in power, the machine had taken power at the time that the Democratic Party formed uh, under Andrew Jackson in uh, around 1830. and once they had taken power in the city they 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 kept it they used their power to sometimes manipulate elections but they also had they were just they were very popular with immigrant populations and they were very good at getting the vote out and the city rolls were all filled with Tammany loyalists and they were basically could not be dislodged you know every eventually like people would get fed up with all the corruption and there would be a non-tammany mayor for a term and then he would be out and Tammany Hall would come sweeping back in. And they really – I mean, there were two problems with Tammany Hall. One is that the people who were appointed to the city officials were appointed for their loyalty, not for their competence. So there was – the city government was rife with incompetence and also rife with corruption because it was corrupt from the very top, from the from the top bosses all the way down. And they would hire people under them who would help them fleece the city and, and make money wherever they could. from real estate shenanigans to building inspectors taking bribes to cops uh, shaking down gamblers and prostitutes and, and madams which was especially rife during this era during the the 1920s because there was so much money flowing in and there were so many illicit activities that it was very easy and very tempting for cops for example with low salaries to take advantage of all the crime that was going on and threatened to raid the brothels or gambling houses unless they were paid off. So one example of this that was central to the book and central to Vivian Gordon's history and life was a ring of crooked cops and defense attorneys and prosecutors and bail bondsmen who were shaking down women for prostitution and framing women prostitution so what was uncovered in in 1930 was this plot where what they would do is they would arrest uh these women under under dubious circumstances bring them down to the courthouse there was a woman's court in uh greenwich village the uh it was you know a, a big spectacle there people you know new yorkers would come in to in the galleries just to ogle the prostitutes being being tried the cops would drop these women these unfortunate women steer them towards crooked bondsmen who would charge them exorbitant fees and who would then uh steer them to defense attorneys and the defense attorney would again charge a very large fee and say "I'll, i'll get you off if you pay it and if if the woman paid then he would deliver kickbacks to the cops who arrested her, to the bondsman. He would make sure that either the cops didn't show up for the trial or he would pay off the prosecutor and arrange for the woman to be free, you know, in exchange for his fat fee. But if the women did not have the money to pay for one of these lawyers, then they were invariably convicted and sentenced to the reformatory. And many of them were innocent. And this kind of scheme is what had caught up Vivian Gordon, when she first started her life of crime, the vice cop that she suspected of framing her had, in fact, it was discovered a very large bank account and a very nice apartment, far more than he should have been able to afford as a cop in New York City.
0: Yeah, I think he had some $35,000 in his bank account on a salary of, what, 7000 a year or something.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, just five days before Vivian Gordon's murder... She met with a key investigator of a commission that was set up precisely to investigate this kind of corruption in the police department and judiciary in New York City. Tell us about that commission and its head, Samuel Seabury, who is the bishop of your title.
1: Yes. So Vivian Gordon is the the butterfly, as in a Broadway butterfly, which is what the press called her. Samuel Seabury was, uh, was called, behind his back, was called the bishop. And that was for two reasons. First of all, his uh, great-great-grandfather was America's first uh, episcopal bishop. Made fame for those who like Hamilton. He was made a small appearance in that in the musical where he was he was one of the antagonists of Hamilton, uh, and he was a loyalist. So the Samuel Seabury from the book was his descendant. Now he was not a clergyman, but he had come descended from a long line of clergyman, including his father. And he had that manner about him. He was very, very self-righteous, very moralistic. He dressed perfectly. His hair was always uh, perfect. He was always clean-shaven. He didn't swear. And he had this like deep, you know, booming voice. And so because of that and because of his ancestry, people called him the bishop. Uh, But he also had perfect integrity. So when The governor at the time, Governor Franklin Roosevelt, was looking for somebody with a clean reputation who would lead in an investigation into some of the corrupt practices of Tammany Hall. Uh, He selected this man, Samuel Seabury. And Seabury was not only was he incorruptible, he was also extremely tenacious. In fact, he did a far better job than FDR had hoped because FDR actually wanted to keep the investigation fairly limited. But Seabury went out there, and it was it was his investigators who uncovered this plot in the women's court to shake down and frame women as prostitutes. Now, Vivian Gordon, when she read about this in the paper, it validated her suspicions that she, she herself had been framed. When she'd been sent to the reformatory, she had lost custody of her daughter, beloved daughter, who she was not allowed to see at all. And so all this time as she was building this criminal career, she was also nursing this, her revenge. And so she contacted the Seabury Commission and she arranged for a meeting with one of his investigators. And she told him about the vice cop, uh, Andrew McLaughlin, and about her, her husband, John Bischoff. And she also wrote to them, actually, wrote to the, the vice cop and her husband, these gloating, triumphant letters about how finally they're going to get their due for ruining her life. And five days after that meeting, uh, she turned up dead, strangled to death with a clothesline in Van Cortlandt Park, which is a big park in the Bronx.
0: You know, it's so hard to tell who might have murdered her because she could have had so many potential. I mean, there's so many potential suspects. And there were a number of different ones, not just Andrew McLaughlin. Um, And there was a trial. I mean, I, I want to go on to FDR too, because there's a larger story here. But, but just to kind of tie this up, there was a trial, but not really justice. Is that right?
1: Yes. I mean, there was the the case was the case was huge. The case because of the sexiness of the case, because of her the notoriety that she gained, because of her connection to the Seabury Commission. This news was in the papers for. Uh, for weeks on the front pages, uh months even not just in New York, but all over the country, I even found stories in about it in Singapore in sydney australia it was It was a very big deal, and the police could not could not for the longest time make any progress. It seemed as if everybody was a suspect, from that lawyer John Reddelov to the vice cop to any of the men that she had targeted and they knew it was a big deal they were concerned because a lot of people suspected that the police had actually bumped her off to keep her quiet. And so the the police commissioner Edward Mulrooney was was very insistent about trying to show that the police were actually taking the case seriously and making progress. He put 200 officers on the case and still it, they did not discover did not make progress for a very long time. They finally found some good evidence uh against uh two people, and I won't spoil it. And there was a trial, but the defendants had a had a very good uh lawyer, uh Samuel he who's a famous lawyer, he went on to defend the Scottsboro boys a couple of years later. And he played on the suspicion that people had that the cops had really bumped her off and had just, you know, picked these two patsies to frame uh for the crime. He was he was very good and the jury believed him. So the two Uh, The two suspects were found innocent or not guilty.
0: Right, exactly. So, Michael Woolrush, let's move to the larger context here. You mentioned uh, Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Of course, this was before he became president. Um, He was the one who, behind the scenes, got the uh, Seabury Commission set up. Uh, first of all, why was it behind the scenes? And then why did he decide to get involved in in, in the homicide investigation to, quote, light a fire under the authorities in New York City?
1: Well, uh, FDR had a complicated relationship with Tammany Hall. He had, at the begin- beginning of his political career, uh, when he ran for the New York State Assembly, he initially positioned himself as a as an anti-Tammany Hall Democrat who would tame Tammany Hall. Uh, and he soon realized within a, within a year or two that that was not a path to political success. Because he was in the same party, he really needed Tammany Hall support to uh, advance his political career. And so he made peace with the Tammany bosses and worked with them for years. And Tammany Hall was instrumental in getting him elected governor in 1928 now he viewed the governorship as really as a stepping stone to the presidency and he had was already planning by 1930 he was already planning to to run for president when this was happening but Tammany Hall was a problem. Its reputation had become so notorious during the 1920s, people and people were so angry about what was going on there that he felt he could not just sit by and do nothing. On the other hand, he needed the support of Tammany Hall. They controlled so many delegates and were so powerful, he really needed their support to win the Democratic nomination in order to run for president. So he wanted to look tough, like he was standing up against Tammany Hall, without... Antagonizing them so much that they would turn on him. So that's why he was not upfront about setting up this investigation. That's why he he essentially used another court to get it set up in the first place rather than doing it directly. And he tried to limit what the, the scope of this investigation initially. Now, there were two problems with this. One was, as I mentioned, uh Samuel Seabury was intent to push this investigation as far as he could and then the other was Vivian Gordon as soon as that the news broke about the sensational murder Roosevelt he was very sad and he understood that this was going to create a lot of political pressure especially if it turned out that the cops had done it it was going to force his hand and really force him to confront Tammany Hall which he didn't want to do uh so that's why he put as much pressure on the police as he could Also, like, quizzed Samuel Seabury on a regular basis, asking him to investigate to try to figure out who had killed Vivian Gordon. And he was very concerned that this was going to be turned into an albatross that would impact his presidential campaign.
0: So I mentioned right at the top that the murder of Vivian Gordon ultimately resulted in the resignation of the mayor of New York, Jimmy Walker. Talk a little bit about Mayor Jimmy Walker and his link to corruption.
1: Sure. So Jimmy Walker was uh, one of a kind. Uh, he was a uh, he was uh, New York's Playboy mayor. He had a personal tailor who would help him design his his ensembles, and he would change his clothes three times a day: once in the morning, once during work, and once when he he went out to party at night. And he would carouse on Broadway, openly carouse with his uh, mistress, who was a a Broadway star half his age people called him the nightmare because of his you know love for New York's nightlife and because of his reputation now this was not a drawback at that time this was the roaring 20s and jimmy walker was beloved he embodied the the hedonism and the excess of the era and so he was wildly popular and he had the full backing of Tammany Hall he came from a Tammany Hall family And, you know, when people raised objections, such as Fiorello LaGuardia, for whom the airport is named, who ran against him in 1929, and LaGuardia was, you know, accusing him of having in his administration of having mob ties, of having having corruption within the administration and with failing to prosecute crimes such as the Vivian Gordon case. And Jimmy Walker just laughed it off. You know, he was famous for his wisecracks. He made jokes of everything, and people loved it. And in 1929, he, he crushed Guardia in that election and seemed set to continue on for the rest of his term or perhaps even higher office. Then the Samuel Seabury investigation and the Vivian Gordon murder interrupted those that trajectory because Jimmy Walker was at the top of this corrupt order, he ended up becoming a target of the investigation. And again, this was something that FDR did not want to do. He did not want to be responsible for investigating the mayor. But because of the political pressure created by the Vivian Gordon case, finally, essentially allowed the investigation to go forward. And Samuel Seabury and his investigators, first of all, they found a lot of dirt and a lot of corruption on a lot of Tammany higher ups, but in particular, they found out that the mayor had a million dollar slush fund and this all came out in a dramatic hearing in the uh in the courthouse downtown, the kind of famous courthouse with the columns that you see in the law and order shows, which was only uh a week or two before the Democratic national Convention
0: now. I found this so interesting because the current mayor of New York, Mayor Adams, is embroiled in or at least adjacent to corruption scandals. He also likes the nightlife. I, I saw there were there were a few parallels there. And New York is a fairly corrupt city. New York is a fairly corrupt state. I mean I have to say that the legislature, you know, has been the subject of many corruption scandals, although I, I think it's a lot has gotten better. In the last few years, since Cuomo <laughs> resigned? <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on parallels between your book, The Bishop and the Butterfly, you know, what you cover in that book, and the current state of affairs in New York City?
1: You know, I mean, to caveat, yeah, the Tammany Hall is 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 no more, in part because of the events that I wrote about. It's not, we're not quite controlled by a, such a powerful political machine as we were back in that day. That said, I do see a lot of similarities between, you know, between these two mayors. I, you know, you, uh, Eric Adams actually calls himself the nightlife mayor, which is uh, very close to Jimmy Walker's uh, nightmare nickname. He's also known for wearing for his fashion and um, for wearing fancy clothes and for for partying late. And he also has a lot of associations with people who have either been indicted or even convicted for various uh, corruption offenses. Then he himself, of course, was uh, famously, the FBI seized his cell phone and iPad, I believe it was in uh, December, it was to investigate campaign finance crime that they were investigating. So, you know, we don't yet know exactly what has been happening in Eric Adams' administration, but, you know, there are enough parallels to make us suspicious.
0: Well, the book is a terrific read, I want to say, Michael Woolreich. It is just fascinating. The Bishop and the Butterfly, Murder, Politics, and the End of the Jazz Age. Thanks so much for talking with us here about it.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure.
0: Michael Woolreich's writing has appeared at Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, the Daily Beast, New York Magazine, and other venues. In addition to The Bishop and the Butterfly, he's the author of Unreasonable Men and Blowing Smoke. Next up, 10 Days in Birmingham, Alabama That Changed America. Stay tuned after the break. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Go to writersvoice.net to find more great content including web-only features like interview transcripts and extended interviews. In August of last year, I spoke with Paul Kicks about his riveting chronicle of the fight to end Jim Crow, of the fight to end Jim Crow in Birmingham, Alabama, led by the greatest figures of the civil rights movement and won by children. The book is You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. We only have time to re-air a portion, but you can hear the whole conversation at writersvoice.net or by subscribing to the Writer's Voice podcast on your favorite podcast app. It was the spring of 1963. The civil rights movement was in disarray. The victory of the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott hadn't translated into weakening Jim Crow anywhere in the South. Something had to be done, something drastic and dramatic, that would focus the nation's attention on the fight for racial justice. That something was Project Confrontation, a plan to challenge Jim Crow in the very apotheosis of white supremacist terror, Birmingham, Alabama, a place journalist Edward R. Marjo likened to Nazi Germany. Journalist Paul Kicks tells a riveting story of those 10 weeks in Birmingham that changed America. During that time, Project Confrontation managed, just barely, to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. It's a story of incredible courage facing vicious brutality, of brilliant strategy and true genius. And, finally, a story of what people can do when they're prepared to die in order to live in freedom. Paul Kicks is a nonfiction author and journalist. He's also the author of The Saboteur, a best-selling account of the world's most daring World War II commando. Paul Kicks, welcome to Writer's Voice.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: You begin this book, this wonderful book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, with a famous photograph of a black teenage boy being attacked by a police dog in Birmingham, Alabama on May third, nineteen sixty three. Why did you begin the book there?
2: In large measure because that's where my own interest in the story began. Uh after my twin boys in particular were born. In fact, I should probably step back just to even a beat before that. I am white, my wife Sonya is black. Uh we have three kids a uh, 13-year-old daughter and twin 12-year-old boys. And especially after the boys were born, I became really sort of felt it almost an obligation to understand uh, the black canon better than I had thus far. And so that meant a deep dive into the civil rights movement in particular. And as I read more and more about the civil rights movement, I became increasingly obsessed in some manner with what I saw as the origin story of the civil rights movement, the the spot where they first had success and the origin story of what I came to see of America. And what I mean by that is 1963 in Birmingham, Alabama, the origin story of the civil rights movement, because that was their first real success, the origin story of America, because that success meant it was the first time that America acknowledged that, yes, we will try to be fully equal. That equality was very much hard earned. and. One of the photos that that depicted how brutal that battle for equality was, was this photo of Walter Gadsden. It's one of the most iconic images of the civil rights movement. Uh, He's 15 years old and his entire right side is exposed. And it is as if the German shepherd who is biting him in his obliques isn't so much biting him as like feasting on him. And yet. Gadston's face is serene and there was something about that photo that just captivated me uh, and has captivated millions of others across time you know going back to the spring of 1963 it captivated the kennedy brothers who were then in the white house so that was really why i wanted to describe that photo as a way to describe my own interest in this story
0: And draw the line between 1963 and July of 2020 and the impact of George Floyd's death and the response to it on your children.
2: Yeah. So, as I said, my wife, Sonia, is black. My wife, is she's also from inner city Houston. And so she grows up predominantly in Fifth Ward, which is the neighborhood adjacent to Third Ward where George Floyd grew up. George and Sonia were the same age. Uh, George was 46 when he died. George and Sonia had many uh, friends in common, though they didn't necessarily know each other. Um, George went to Yates High, many of Sonia's friends, and in particular, her cousins went to Yates High. Sonia's cousin, Derek, remembered George, knew him back then, and, and watched him as the tight end on the Yates High football team that made it to the state championship game. So I say that to your to your listenership. In large part because George Floyd's death was the first time that my wife and I decided to allow our kids to watch the footage of another black man being killed by law enforcement officials. And and we did it in large measure because Sonia and my mother-in-law Connie, who also lived with us at the time, and again also from inner city Houston, felt that though they did not know George personally, their death carried some sort of personal re- reverberations in some sense. And so we all, as a family, sat on the couch on CN- and watched CNN and watched, watched George die. And, my, and the kids really had a... Francesca, they really had a hard time with it. It was... I was just describing the Gadsden photo, right? And how it kind of obsessed me. Because in that Gadsden photo, I saw, in some measure, the whole history of America. I saw how black people had been treated by whites. I saw the dignity with which black people responded i saw also what that image set in motion everything that's happened in the last 60 years up to and including my ability to marry someone like Sonia in a former jim crow state like texas however when my kids saw the image of george floyd the images they saw the ones that they studied there was nothing like hope in any of those images instead there was only like a hopelessness that bordered on despair And we heard it all the time, like how our kids, they were going to move away from here just as quickly as they could. And as that summer of 2020 continued, as the footage of George continued to be spread, and as the Black Lives Matter movement uh, spread as well across the United States, there were other shootings as well. Like Jacob Blake, I don't know if you remember him, Kenosha, Wisconsin cops shot Jacob Blake, a black man, seven times in the back while his three kids screamed from the back of his car. And so my twin boys saw that footage too. And my son, Walker, he ran from the room in tears, you know, screaming, you know, why do they keep trying to kill us? And his brother, Marshall, followed close behind, you know, also in tears. And I say all this and I share this in the book really because I wanted to try to find a way to buoy the kids. That was really it. And so I began to think about, like, well, what kind of story could I tell them? What kind of story could Sonya tell them as well? And we settled on a family project that very quickly became my next book project. And it was those 10 weeks in 1963. Not just because what happened in those 10 weeks forever changed the trajectory of America. But really because we saw in those 10 weeks almost a guide for how my how our kids could lead their lives, how they could lead it with courage, how they could persevere, the ingenuity that it took to win across those 10 weeks. And, and it's kind of like above all the hope that they would have to have in their own lives. Uh That's why I wrote this book. That's why the book is dedicated to the kids. And really, it's meant not just for them, but really anybody who in the past few years has experienced a bit of hopelessness.
0: What you're talking about, it seems, really is embodied in the title. You have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. Talk about where does that come from and why, you know, what does that message mean?
2: Yeah, so... There is both a literal and a metaphoric interpretation of that. So let's deal first with just how, who said it. Fred Shuttlesworth was a Birmingham pastor and one of the key protagonists in this book. I believe today that Fred Shuttlesworth should be as well known as Martin Luther King. He was known back in the 1960s as the bravest civil rights leader and fighter during the whole of the movement. King himself called Shuttlesworth that. Fred was was a pastor in Birmingham and a civil rights leader at a time when it was very, very dangerous to be a civil rights leader. Before King or anybody else was in Birmingham, there was Fred Shuttlesworth. And I think maybe for your audience, it might be important to understand the quote. We perhaps have to just take a quick second to understand the context of Birmingham at that time. As King and the rest are coming down there, Birmingham is a place that castrated black men as a way to try to intimidate Shuttlesworth and uh, other SCLC leaders from actually staging a civil rights campaign in Birmingham. Birmingham was a place where cops raped black women in their patrol cars. Uh, Birmingham was a place where CBS's Edward R. Murrow, who was reporting from Birmingham prior to this campaign, colloquially known as Project Confrontation, he's down there. And at one point, Edward Armoreo turns to his producer, doing, you know, doing his own story about like what Birmingham is actually like, and says, "Not only is it the most racist, most violent city he's ever visited in America, but there is no place like this that he has ever seen since Nazi Germany." So that's Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. And to bring it back to Fred, long before King was trying to stage civil rights campaigns there, In Birmingham. Shuttlesworth was doing that, sometimes literally on on his own. His home was bombed. He stood in front of buses, literally stood in front of moving buses that refused to integrate. He was, on multiple occasions, nearly beaten to death by Bull Connor, who was the public safety commissioner and and effectively the the head of the police department and kind of the the villain of this story because he was truly evil in, in real life. And just prior to. The launch of this civil rights campaign in the spring of 1963, which, again, colloquially known as Project Confrontation, just prior to this launch, King and the rest go to uh, go to New York to, to have a fundraiser there with with Harry Belafonte in Harry Belafonte's apartment. And Fred just starts to basically tell stories about his life. And the the, the deep pocketed New Yorkers who were there tonight to to try to you know raise money for this campaign, they're just kind of in awe. And we don't know exactly what's asked, but we do know that basically the question posed to Fred was like, How do you endure? How have you done this for years, sometimes single handedly? Again, a place basically like Nazi Germany. How have you done this? And Fred looked at the crowd and he said, You have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live and he meant that quite literally you know one time when Fred one time Fred tried to enlist his daughters in in an all-white high school and he told Bull Connor he was going to go to try to enlist them and so as he arrives at the high school there he's met by eight to ten white men with brass knuckles and lead pipes and chains and He is nearly beaten to death. His His wife, Ruby, is stabbed in, in her lower back. She's rushed to the hospital. Fred somehow escapes. And that afternoon, he checks himself out of the hospital because he had a civil rights meeting that night. And when he appeared at the civil rights meeting, almost all of the skin was scraped off his face from what he had endured that afternoon. But he said, I'm going to be here. I'm here for the duration, however long it takes to have equality. So when Fred Shuttles, when Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth says, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live, that's kind of what he means. He was willing to risk his life so that he might at last fully appreciate life, provide a better life for himself and his family. But if I could go just to beat more on this, Shuttlesworth was like so many other leaders that spring in Birmingham. A pastor, and he read a great deal of the Bible. And I think if you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live, is also in some sense a resurrection story. I don't mean that necessarily by way of Jesus and the resurrection. What I mean instead is that Fred understood the metaphor of the resurrection story. Sometimes to truly lead the life you are destined to, you have to be willing to die. And that death can be a metaphoric death. It can mean moving beyond who you currently are to embrace the possibility of who you might become. And that who you might become might be so good, might be so great, that generations of people may benefit from it. And I think that's also what he meant when he said, you have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live.
0: This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. We're talking with Paul Kicks about his book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, 10 Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America. And there's a direct connection between that statement and... I guess one would say the moral heart of this book in the use of nonviolence, maybe not the moral heart, the strategic heart.
2: Yeah, it's kind of in some sense. I don't think that's a slip up. I think it's kind of both. It's like a moral and a strategic heart. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So talk about that, because this is something I I mean, I think we all know that the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King and the others was dedicated to the principles of nonviolence. King was inspired by Mahatma Gandhi in India, but I don't think many of us understand exactly what that means because nonviolence on its own, even they did not see as effective. What they saw as effective was nonviolence as a way to, in fact, incite the violence of others and therefore shock the moral conscience of the country. Talk about what this means.
2: That's it you've hit on it and you know one of the other protagonists in the book is the executive director of the SCLC at the time his his name was Wyatt Walker so for the for basically the first 7 years of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's life it had been an abject failure every campaign that king and his colleagues staged they they lost now some people may quibble with that who who know the civil rights movement really well and say the Montgomery bus boycott received you know the the championing of the supreme court And those buses in Montgomery were were desegregated. This was in 1955, 1956. I would say, and in fact, the historical record would say by 1963, black people in Montgomery had returned to riding in the back of the bus in large measure because of the intransigence of the Klan in Montgomery and frankly, the intransigence of the Alabama government. So, again, across basically the first seven years of the SELC's life, abject failure The idea of nonviolence, they began to realize, can only work when you go to the site of violence. When you go to a place like Birmingham, which was less a city than, frankly, a site of domestic terror, there were more than 50 bombs in the post-war era between the 1940s and, and late 1960s in Birmingham that went, quote, unsolved. These were bombings that took place in in predominant black homes in Birmingham, in predominant black businesses, and it was almost assuredly done by the Ku Klux Klan and their barely cloaked colleagues in the Birmingham Police Department, and of course, any other sort of associate group that might be affiliated with either of those two. So rather than run from a place like Birmingham, Walker said, let us go to the very site of terror and anger every terrible person there. And that was the plan in Birmingham. Now, to do that, and this is something that I didn't appreciate until I began really the research of this book. There was almost this psychological warfare that's going on between the S.D.L.C. and Bull Connor and his cops. It's, I guess, another way to put it would be almost like a cat and mouse game where the SCLC was trying. Incite is not necessarily the right word, but we're trying to basically get Bull to respond the way that they knew that he wanted to, which was with extreme violence, extreme hatred. He'd been doing it for more than a generation as a public safety commissioner and elected official in Birmingham. And a lot of the book is trying to figure out how can we get Bull to come to these protests that we're waging? How can we take away the options that Bull has so that the only option left to him is one where he would respond with violence? And then how can we make sure, if and when he does respond with violence, that, say, a reporter from the New York Times is scribbling notes? Or a camera crew is filming footage that will later that night make its way on Walter Cronkite's broadcast. How can we make sure that's going to happen? And that was the sort of psychological warfare, psychological games that were happening beneath all of these daily protests that were happening in Birmingham.
0: And it wasn't that easy. I mean, I bet a lot of listeners right now are thinking, well... (laughs) If Bull Connor was such a brute, and he was, then why was it so difficult to get him to respond that way?
2: In large measure because Bull had been in some way coached and trained by other law enforcement officials in the South in the same manner that the SCLC tried to coach and train any volunteer that tried to sign up for its nonviolence. In Bull's case, he heard from officials in Albany, Georgia, where the SCLC had staged a campaign one year prior in 1962. And from these uh, law enforcement officials, Bull learns that if he just does as those officials in Albany did, which is to arrest the pastors kneeling at their feet, almost with unctuous care, as if the law enforcement officials are praying themselves. If Bull is as gentle as possible when arresting all these people, and if he can train his cops to be as gentle as possible when arresting all these people, then the SELC won't be able to fight back because, again, they're trained in nonviolence. But more importantly, the national press, which has been gathered, to watch this, quote, spectacle, this bloody violence that Wyatt Walker has promised, they're going to grow bored. They're going to grow hostile toward the SELC, and they're going to leave. And for a very long time during Project Confrontation, that is pretty much exactly what happens. Bull is very careful. He, he knows that he, he cannot respond the way he wants to. And so he and, and again, his very violent, very racist white police officers within his force do everything they can to make sure that they use no excess force against the SELC.
0: And yet at the same time, the black community was realistic about, about the kind of violence that they would face uh, with this movement. And in fact, there was a lot of resistance from the black community, including the clergy and business leaders, to the SCLC coming in. I mean, even though Fred Shuttlesworth was one of their own, Martin Luther King and others of the SCLC were outsiders, quote unquote.
2: Outside agitators. Yep.
0: Outside agitators. Exactly. I, I remember the use of that of that phrase very well. So... How did that change? What happened to get them on board?
2: Well, maybe the first thing to say is that when we think of the civil rights movement today, we tend to think of it along two lines. There was a natural progression to how things unfolded and success begat success. And then secondly, that they acted almost as a monolith, right? Right. And as we were just saying a minute ago, success did not beget success. In fact, for the first seven years of that campaign, it was nothing. The first seven years of that movement, it was nothing but failure for the SCLC. But more specifically to your question, we have to bear in mind that somebody like King, who comes in from Atlanta with a whole bunch of other people from Atlanta, like Uh, Ralph Abernathy, who was King's best friend, like Wyatt Walker, who, again, was the executive director of the SCLC. When they come in, black Birminghamians see them as people who want to protest here, want to try to help black Birminghamians. And there is a sort of patronizing air and a sneer to that sort of help. You know, James Bevel, who was another senior executive within the SCLC at that time, and again, another protagonist within this book, he was quick to to notice how the fault of Wyatt Walker's thinking was that not until Wyatt Walker declared Birmingham as his next site for a campaign, not until then did any Birminghamian have any sense that he or she would want freedom. And James Bevel said that's an absolutely ridiculous notion. They had been fighting for freedom just as long as anybody else. But they were fighting in a far more harsher place than anybody else. And so for King and the rest to come in and say, no, 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 do it our way. We know how to do it. Again, there was something really patronizing about that that they didn't appreciate. So that's a big part of why the uh, the Black Baptist uh, pastors with whom King was supposed to align in Birmingham did not want to align. But there were other reasons, too. A lot of black Birminghamians, frankly, black and white Birminghamians, thought that the problems of Birmingham should be solved by the people of Birmingham, that King and the rest were not necessary. And then there was a third problem, which was—and this is something that King and Wyatt Walker in particular did not realize for a very long time—they thought that all of these adults would be willing to protest alongside King because King was was growing— at least on the national stage, into the almost mythic king, uh, that, that the way that history remembers him today. And they thought just because of that sort of public persona, people would want to follow behind. But the reality was almost all of black Birmingham were employed by white people. About 50% of black Birmingham were domestic workers, whose bosses were often rich people in Birmingham or, frankly, even richer people in the Birmingham suburb of Mountain Brook and even those who were the professional class and even up into the upper class of black Birmingham to the extent it had one this would be predominantly teachers and a few lawyers you know a lawyer he if he he could risk disbarment from some judge for stepping out uh and protesting or if he was employed in any way by anybody that that had a partner in the firm that was white, you know, if he was working at a white law, you know, forget it. Right now. Um, same thing goes with teachers. The superintendent of Birmingham schools at that time was white, and he strictly forbade any teacher from marching. And so the sentiment that built across the first month or so of that campaign was, well, great. If I protest alongside you, King, I may be beaten. I may be beaten even, even for beliefs that I have and for a future that I want my kids to have, a better future that I want my kids to have, excuse me. But after you leave town, I'm, I'm going to be unemployed. And where is that going to take, where is that going to leave me then? And so they didn't want to protest because it would, it would mean their jobs if they did.
0: And that becomes a real crucial propulsion to the twist in this story. So before we get to that twist in the story, let's talk about the Good Friday march because it was the first march in fact that king himself attended. Why hadn't he marched before? I mean after all, other people were putting their lives on the line even if there weren't that many of them as many as they had hoped. Um so why hadn't he marched and what made the difference here?
2: Why hadn't he marched? We can honestly, from the vantage point of 60 years on, only speculate. Some of that speculation includes that the first few weeks of the campaign were such an abysmal failure that if King would have put himself out in front of a march where only literally like three or four people followed behind him, it would risk his own reputation. So there was this political slash optical reason why king had not yet marched there were also reasons just frankly having to do with you know his some of his closest aides would later say that martin was a man was the most indecisive leader they have ever met in their lives and maybe for no other reason than he thought now is not yet the time, or I want to put other people out there first, like my brother. Uh, His brother, A.D. King, lived in Birmingham, and he thought, well, maybe what will happen if A.D. goes before I do? We have only speculation to rely on, which is kind of remarkable because King wrote extensively about the Birmingham campaign and gave numerous interviews around the Birmingham campaign. But one thing he never fully delved into was, well, wait, why exactly isn't that that you chose not to do anything until the Good Friday March? But we do know that he chose to do nothing until the Good Friday March. Okay, so what is happening during that Good Friday March? Well, here's where it's kind of fascinating. King says the, the, the campaign is getting worse and worse. Fewer and fewer people are Are going to protest. And so King and his and his sort of senior team decide, okay, well, maybe to try to buoy the numbers of people who are going to participate, I should be the one to lead the march on Good Friday. If there's some symbolic value in that, again, a resurrection story in and of itself there, you know. And as he's making these public statements, Bull Connor, who remains pretty wily at this point in time, says effectively, if if you want to march King, go ahead. But I am going to not allow you to use any bail bondsmen in this city. And so, what that meant was that the bail that the SELC had thus far relied on to get its few jailed protesters out of jail, it would no longer, the the SELC would no longer have access to that, which means that it would basically have to pay the full freight. And Bull Connor then upped how much it would cost anybody to go to jail to exorbitant sums and so this really just literally hours before the good friday march put king in a real bind and he did not know if he could should march because here's here's why and i can understand this indecision at this point in time if he marches francesca he risks Being in prison, excuse me, in jail, he risked being in the Birmingham City Jail for six months. That is more than enough time to ruin Project Confrontation and the Birmingham campaign and perhaps ruin the SCLC as well. If he chooses not to march, the press is going to ridicule him for his flip-flop. On Wednesday of that Good Friday week, he said he made a big public announcement. I'm going to march by the following day, Thursday. He's thinking about equivocating and going back against his word. If he marches, everybody that marches alongside him will not only be imprisoned for up to six months, but if they try to free any of those protesters, it will bankrupt the SCLC. The, the the efforts to get everybody out of jail will bankrupt the F- SCLC. But if he doesn't march and if he goes to try to stage some sort of fundraiser at maybe Harry Belafonte's apartment back in New York, he's going to lose the sort of political capital that he desperately needs, not only from black Birminghamians, but basically everybody throughout the country. He's going to be seen as the guy who's going to follow the leader who can't follow his own words. That was one of the things that he heard. As he was debating what to do, and so he has this great moment of crisis, and I'll save some of exactly what happens for for readers of the book itself. But what I will say is that he has a moment of clarity thanks to a deep amount of reflection and prayer. And he feels that God is telling him that he has to march. And so he goes back into the Gaston Motel and he tells all of his executives, I need to march. And even King's own father, Martin Luther King Sr., says, I don't think you should march today. I think this is a terrible idea. And he says, I'm going to march, whether it means I'm marching by myself. I have to do this. And later, there are... Other civil rights leaders who were there in that room that day, among them Andrew Young, uh, who play an outsized role in the civil rights movement in the in the years after 1963, but Young and others say that that moment, hours before the Good Friday march, was the emergence for the first time of King's quote true leadership. That's when he really stepped into who he would ultimately be, and it was in Birmingham on Good Friday. In 1963. And I love that story in part because it echoes back to what we talked about earlier. King had to let go of who he had been. He had to die so that he might attempt to live. And this new king that emerges is one that just inspires everybody around him, first in the Gaston Motel where they're staying, and ultimately on the streets in Birmingham when, he's, when he marches on Good Friday.
0: That was Paul Kicks talking with us last year about his book, You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live. As this episode is being produced, more than 28,000 Gazans have been killed and between a quarter and a half of those still alive, faced starvation as a result of the Israeli genocidal incursion into Gaza. The celebrated Palestinian poet Mossab Abu Toha was abducted by the Israeli defense forces and brutally beaten before a global outcry resulted in his release. He was hospitalized due to his injuries, and after recovering sufficiently to leave the hospital, escaped Gaza with his family to Egypt. His most recent poetry volume, Things You May Find Hidden in My Ear, was released in 2022 and won the American Book Award, the Palestine Book Award, and the 2023 Derek Walcott Poetry Prize. Here's a poem from the book, My Grandfather Was a Terrorist. My Grandfather Was a Terrorist He tended to his field, watered the roses in the courtyard, smoked cigarettes with grandmother on the yellow beach, lying there like a prayer rug. My grandfather was a terrorist. He picked oranges and lemons, went fishing with brothers until noon, sang a comforting song en route to the farriers with his piebald horse. My grandfather was a terrorist he made a cup of tea with milk, sat on his verdant land as soft as silk. My grandfather was a terrorist. He departed his house, leaving it for the coming guests, left some water on the table, his best, lest the guests die of thirst after their conquest. My grandfather was a terrorist. He walked to the closest safe town, empty as a sullen sky, vacant as a deserted tent, dark as a starless night. My grandfather was a terrorist, my grandfather was a man, a breadwinner for ten, whose luxury was to have a tent with a blue UN flag set on the rusting pole on the beach next to a cemetery. That was Mosab Abu Toha's poem, My Grandfather Was a Terrorist. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. And you can read interview transcripts at the Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Riannon.